0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is a joy and a delight to, to be here today. And one of the things that I am praising God about this morning is our worship time. The words to the songs support the sermon to, and it was just affirmation that the Holy Spirit is uh, speaking to us this morning. Amen? Amen? So how many of you are actually excited about the fact? that we're hanging out in the book of Numbers for a second week in a row. Yeah? Yeah? You got, are you a number person? Uh, no? Well, neither am I. And so uh, Numbers is, is not one of my favorite books to read, uh, primarily because it is a book about Numbers. But and when I get into Numbers, especially at the first part of the book, I, my eyes just begin to glaze over. Because it is talking about the Israelites and uh, the census takers and the numbers of the descendants and the ancestors and the tribes and the clans and the, and the family lineage, lineage. And it talks about the numbers of those who were able to go out to war and, and those who didn't go out to war. And actually the book of Numbers reminds me of the statistical reports that churches have to give to the conference office at the first of the year. That's what it reminds me of. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it is a book primarily about two numberings, the numberings of the Israelites and their journey in the wilderness, both the beginning and the end. But it's not all numbers. If you stick with the story and continue reading, Numbers describes the journey of the Israelites from Sinai to the plains of Moab. And this is where the stories get interesting, where the action begins to take place. And in our text this morning is another one of those interesting stories where you kind of scratch your head and you say, did that really happen? This is a short story. It's only nine verses long, but it is a powerful story. And so much so that it is mentioned in other places in scripture, even in the New Testament. Did you realize that? So let's dive into the context of the book of Numbers and this particular story. And we begin uh, with the Jewish people, and they call this book In the Wilderness. The book of Numbers takes place after the exodus from Egypt, and the nation of Israel has been camped out at Mount Sinai for a year. And now it is time for the children of Israel to march into the promised land uh, that God has given to them. But things have seemed to go terribly wrong as they begin this journey from Sinai to travel to that land. Because, you see, what has happened is the people have gotten hot and tired and thirsty and just uh, a a little bit uh, grumpy, and they begin to uh, complain about the food, and, and they keep asking Moses those annoying questions like, Are we there yet? How much longer until we get to go eat at McDonald's? We're really hungry. Are we there yet? And Moses sends out 12 spies to go out into the land and to scout it out and, and, and to see just what it is that they might be coming up against. And the 12 come back, and 10 of them give a negative report. They say, oh, these people are really big, and they're really strong. They're too powerful. There's no way in the world we're going to be able to overcome them. In fact, it says in Scripture that they were like giants and that they were like wee grasshoppers. And there were only two that were able to come back and to report uh, uh, to the group that God was with them and that they needed to go in and to take the land. And I find it very interesting how 10 people that give a negative report that that could just spread like a cancer and begin to move out across the people and the nation decides that they are not going to enter into this covenant land. That is decided on their own. They don't even bother to ask God about it and how he feels about it. They say, we can't go in there. We're not strong enough. And so you can already hear where the Israelites have taken their eyes off of God. And that they are now looking at their circumstances. And because they've taken their eyes off of God, it is then that their point of view has become poisonous. Because their circumstances are now much larger than God. And I find it that this is a very ironic moment, because a year earlier, they left Egypt, they escaped the Egyptian army, and did they escape by their own strength and power? No, no, God was there with them. In fact, He gave them specific instruction uh, to go, to get ready, to pack up, to have a quick meal to go and talk to their slaveholders and tell them they needed to give them their gold and their jewelry. And, oh, by the way, they're going to give it to you because God is the one that's in control here. And then he told them that they needed to go and uh, to march and that God was going to take care of the rest of it. And God did. He provided miraculously uh, for uh, the children of Israel. Uh, here they were trying to escape the Egyptian army that was hot on their heels. They were coming up to the Red Sea. And, and God parted the Red Sea. And the children of Israel were able to walk across dry land all the way to the other side. And when everyone was safe on the other side, then the waters came crashing down. And it destroyed the uh, Egyptian army. So here they are facing another nation. And it's not like that they haven't been in this situation before, right? I mean, it should be pretty simple. Shouldn't they just do the same thing that God had told them to do last time? Which is to be ready, pack up, have a a quick meal, and get ready to march. And God's going to take care of the rest of it. But something changed. Something happened. And because of the lack of faith that they had, because they chose not to trust God, walked in disobedience... God tells the people that no one in that generation was going to be able to go into the promised land. He said that their children and their grandchildren would be able to go in, but that this generation, because the consequences of their fear and their lack of faith, is that they now get to wander around in the wilderness for 40 long years. Imagine that. That actually happened. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want that. And so we move on in the book of Numbers, and towards the end of the journey, Moses' sister, Miriam, dies. The people continue to complain and murmur and and to rebel even more. And as you remember, you learned last week in in the censers and sinkholes of how the people uh, tried to uh, take over the leadership of, of Moses and Aaron. And then Aaron dies, and it seems that Moses is there all alone. And I can't even imagine what it must have been like for Moses uh, realizing that he is now left with a group of stubborn, bullheaded people who are constantly complaining and murmuring and rebelling. And there is such uncertainty in that. And yet when you think about it, that's the way it is in leadership sometimes. And, And those of you who have led a group or had to lead something, I'm sure that you may identify with Moses in one way or another. So this is where we pick up our story. We have a Canaanite king. He had heard about the Israelites coming, and he captures some of them and brings them into captivity. And what you need to realize that this is the land of Canaan. This is the land that the Israelites were supposed to go in and and to take over. And uh, this Canaanite king, uh, he has territory not only in the land of Canaan, but also in the wilderness territory that the Israelites are in. And ironically, the nation of Israel finally decides to grow a backbone. And they finally stand up and they plead with God and they vow to him, God, if you will help us and conquer uh, and help us to win in this battle, we will, take, we will get rid of this king, destroy the king and their cities. So finally, the people rise up and they actually walk in obedience to what God had called them to do in the first place. So... They have a great victory. They, they march forward. They move on. And let's pick up here in verse 4. It says, From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people became impatient on the way. I think that's very key. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. We have brought you up. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we detest this miserable food. Whine, whine, wine. Do you hear that whining? I mean, this isn't the first time that the children of Israel have spoken these words. We have heard this before. Oh, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? It seems like every time the children of Israel come up against some kind of opposition or struggle, they began to immediately complain. And how quickly they have forgotten that they used to be slaves. How quickly they have forgotten that God is the one that brought deliverance for them. That God is the one that released them from slavery and brought them into this promised land. How quickly they have forgotten that God is the one that provided the food and the water in this wilderness journey. And yet, how quickly they have forgotten that they are the ones that rebelled against this covenant and against the promised land that has been given to them. And that they have forgotten the fact that it's their unfaithfulness. That this is the reason why they're in this situation and why God had to deal with them in the way that he did. And did they blame themselves? No. They blamed God. They blamed Moses. This is a poisonous point of view. Can you try to say poisonous point of view three times really fast? It's kind of a tongue twister. A poisonous point of view. But I love the next line. It says, for there is no food, no water, and we detest this miserable food. So which is it? What are they really complaining about? I mean, on the one hand, they say that we have no food and no water. And then on the other hand, they say, Well, we detest this miserable food. And the truth is, is their complaint isn't about the fact of them not having food or water, they have it. What they're complaining about is that they don't like the food that has been provided to them by God. It's kind of like whenever I remember my kids were little and they're standing in the front of the refrigerator. And the door's wide open, and they go, Mom, I'm hungry. And they're sitting there looking in the refrigerator, and I said, Well, the refrigerator's full of food. I, I went earlier this week, find yourself something to eat. And they're rummaging around looking, and they slam the door, and they said, There's never anything good to eat in this house. Stomp off. And I said, Well, if you're gonna whine, I'll be glad to give you something to whine about. But that's kind of like what God's already done, really, in this story. Oh, if you're going to whine, I'll I'll give you something to to whine about. Sound familiar? The truth is, is that maybe they really weren't hungry. Do you get the picture? Here they are in the desert. It's already difficult to find the food. And uh, why are they in the desert in the first place? Because they didn't go into the land and possess it, as God said. They had rebelled. And yet every day God had provided for them manna, the bread from heaven, the miracle every single day. And yet they got tired of it. They got tired of the manna. And they whined some more and they said, we want meat. Where's the meat? God gave them quail and he gave them so much meat. It says that it filled them up so full that it began to even run out their nose. That really happened. Ooh, yuck, yeah. And so, basically, Israel was saying that they were tired of being fed by a miracle every single day of their existence. Did you hear that? The children of Israel were saying that they were tired of being fed a miracle every day of their existence. And you say, well, Pastor Tony, that's kind of hard to identify with that because I don't know what it's like to eat every day. But it really is true to home more than you realize. Because you see, Jesus is our bread from heaven. Jesus is the miracle. Jesus is the living word that sustains us. Jesus is that word that uh, we are of eternal beings, and he is eternal. And And we gave these little ones their Bibles. And how powerful is that? That it is God's Word, just as uh, the children of Israel were guided in this wilderness experience, Jesus guides us in our journey, our wilderness that is inside of each of us. Wanting so to love us and to free us and to heal us and to transform us if we would simply let Him. And yet we say, I'm tired of eating this food. I want something sweet, I want something easier. How many of you have dust on your Bible because it's been sitting at the table for so long? Or that you haven't taken that opportunity to sit in front of the miracle of the presence of the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ himself. And when we do this, we are basically saying we're tired of eating this miracle that has been provided for us every day of our existence. Talk about taking something for granted and becoming complacent. I've noticed something. When we become impatient, we begin to complain. And when we complain, we no longer appreciate what's being done for us. And then we take things for granted. And it's just a downward spiral. I think the book of Numbers should be called the disobedience in the desert. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we detest this miserable food. And yet God has been very gracious. The problem is, is that the people want their own way. And oftentimes when we fail to sit with the bread of life, it's because we want our own way. And it is here where we see God give the people exactly what they want. All right, you're going to whine. I'm going to give you something to whine about. You don't want this exodus. I am going to give you what you have asked for. I am going to give you the fate of the Egyptians. I am going to send the plagues on you that I sent to Egypt. So let's read on. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord and take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. The people had a poisonous point of view, and it literally destroyed their lives. Too many of us today live this way, and our point of view has become corrupted simply because we are not in step with the wonderful grace that God has already given us. We should be thankful and yet we complain and we whine we should be praising God and yet there are times that we even curse God we forget all about God's goodness because we've taken our eyes off of God and onto our circumstances and did you realize that when we complain when we refuse to take responsibility for our own sin what we have done to ourselves we're compl- and blame others in our circumstance that we're actually complaining against God? Because you see, for a child of God, do we believe that God is sovereign? Do we believe that He's in control? Do we believe that He's good and that He is going to work things out on our behalf? Either we believe that or we don't. And so many people look at the book of Numbers and all they see is a mad and angry God all the time with His people. And when I look at the book of Numbers, I see a God who is slow to anger. I see a God who is very patient. He doesn't become impatient with us. He is full of second and third and fourth chances, and he tells the people the consequences of their disobedience even before he hands out the sentence. I see a God that in spite of the people's ungratefulness and their complaining and outright disobedience, that God doesn't destroy the people, but in fact, He offers a way of grace. He offers a way out of their own self-induced prison. If only they had eyes to see. If only they would trust me. If only they would choose to have faith in me, in God. And it's the same message for all of us today. If you have a poisonous point of view... The remedy to that is simply to look to God. You see, it's only after the consequences of Israel's sin that they realized that the consequences leads to death. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans uh, Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The people can escape the death if they're willing to accept the remedy that God has provided, and it's one of a bronze snake. And we see God showing the Israelites both their sin and a way out through His grace. It's because of their sin that they find themselves in this situation anyway where the serpents are biting them. And that only antivenom there is, is for them to look at that bronze snake as a reminder of their sin, but also for them to receive their healing. The bronze snake on the pole is not something that's magical, but it is symbolic. It's as if God is saying, you know you're going to have to face the sin. You're going to have to face this mess that you have gotten yourself into, You're going to have to face your sin and to realize that you are in need of a Savior, to realize that your sin is going to lead ultimately to death, and that there is only one way out, and that is that you're going to have to look at this bronze snake that is stuck up here on this pole. Death is for certain. The only antivenom is to look up at the bronze snake that is on the pole. Nothing else is going to heal you. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? And yet, it's also mind boggling to try to understand. It doesn't make sense in our logical thinking about healing. The antivenom, it seems to be too good to be true. You mean all I have to do is to look at this bronze snake on this pole? It doesn't seem to make sense. But you know, I think that that is exactly the point because the healing is in God's hands. You see, salvation. In the New Testament, the Greek word is sozo, and it means wholeness, wellness, healing, completeness in Christ Jesus. And right here in the Old Testament, in this story, this healing is being offered if they would simply humble themselves and look at this bronze snake on the pole. The people had to take ownership for their sin. They did it to themselves, but it was also against God. When we sin, we sin against God, ourselves, and others. When we sin, we need to stop blaming our circumstances and people and to take ownership and to face God with it. And the bronze snake shows the Israelites two very important things. First of all, their sin, but also God's grace. I love the Christian author, Max Licato. He puts it this way. To see sin without grace is despair. To see grace without sin is arrogance. To see them in tandem is conversion. So here we are in the midst of this crazy story about people's sin and God's amazing grace. But that's the way it is throughout the Bible. The antivenom to the poisonous point of view is to look to God. But this isn't the end of the story. It doesn't end here because you see, this same story is also in the New Testament as well. And specifically, it is Jesus talking in the Gospel of John and he is having a conversation with Nicodemus. How many of you remember who Nicodemus is? Nicodemus is a Pharisee, he is a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus at night because he wanted to learn. We also know that Nicodemus was there with Mary and the women, and they were there to bury the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. So instead of me telling you this story, I thought it would be good for us to watch this story together. Thank you. And just as Moses was lifted up, had lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is an unbelievable story that happens in the Old Testament, and it's not so much about the people's rebellion as it is about the grace of God. And maybe you feel like you have been bitten by life, maybe you feel like you have a poisonous point of view, and maybe you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back, please. But maybe you feel that the Holy Spirit is is tugging at your heart and that it's time to humble yourself and to look to Jesus, the one who knows you the most and loves you the best and to receive that healing, that place that is so wounded that you think that you're literally going to die. You have an opportunity to come here and to kneel at these kneeling rails. Charlie and I are here and many other people that would be willing to come and to pray at this altar. But it is your time to come and to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Will you please come?